0: So this morning's message is out of Deuteronomy 6, and if you have been coming for a few weeks, you might right now have this feeling like, wait, wait, did I miss a few weeks? What happened? Because I thought we were in the book of Numbers. I thought we were in Numbers 25 last week, so what's what's going on? Uh, So uh, maybe you did fall asleep. I don't know. Uh, You should stay awake a little better in church. (laughs) But actually, yeah, last week was Numbers 25, and that was the uh, episode where uh, Israel got lured into worshiping Baal, and this guy Phineas took a spear, and there was some justice. Kind of a gory story. Uh, so that's where we were last week, and now here we're in we're in Deuteronomy. The reason for that, we're doing the series on Numbers in Deuteronomy, and we're going to be doing a lot of the a lot of the passages, a lot of quite a few, but not everything. There's just no way we can do everything uh, from this. So I want to give a little, just kind of a mini recap of what happened at the end of uh, Numbers 25 going into Deuteronomy 6. So if you do have scripture, you can uh, flip through this uh, just kind of briefly, and sometimes even just looking at the, the headings that they give kind of helps a little bit. Uh, if you have the Pew Bible, I believe, uh, starting here with the page 134, because Numbers 26, if we did a message on that, it would be another census. At the beginning of Numbers, it started off giving a census of the people. That's why the book's called Numbers, uh, where they counted all the people. Because what is going on here in the book of Numbers, this is after uh, God had Moses lead the the Israelites out of Egypt. They were, in, they were slaves in Egypt, and he brought them out through the Red Sea. And at the beginning, they count how many people they are because God had told them he was going to make a great nation out of Israel, and you need people, land, and law. And you had the people, they had uh, given them the law, and now they needed to go in and take the land, uh, the, the Canaan, which is now basically the land of Israel, the promised land. And so at the end here at 25, they're right at the border, okay? They're uh, right across the the Jordan River on the east side of the boundary of Uh, Canaan, they're supposed to go in. And what had happened is before they were supposed to go in to attack, and that first generation that came out, they decided, nope, we're not going to do it. And they, through unbelief, they disobeyed God, and they they didn't go in to, uh, to take the land the way that God told them to do this. And God judged them and said, because of your unbelief, you are not going to take this land. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years and the next generation will do it. So that's what chapter 26 is. It's the census of this new generation that's now going to go in and take the land. So that's where we're at. So 40 years have passed. Moses is a pretty old guy at this point, probably 120 years old, uh, give or take. So that's, that's where he is. You have some other things that are going on in chapter 27, some issues about... Inheritances and how that works you have a few chapters about some of the offerings and different feasts and festivals And we've had other messages about this. It's important stuff. If we were living in Old Testament days We would be responsible to be living these things out But because Jesus is the the final sacrifice. We don't have to do these other sacrifices uh, anymore In chapter 31, it talks about vengeance against Midian, the Midianites, uh, for their role along with Moab in leading Israel into worshiping Baal. And so uh, Israel has vengeance on them. So uh, to make a long story short, Israel goes in and uh, Midian gets their tail kicked by Israel. And uh, through this Balaam, that kind of sleazy prophet for hire, he gets whacked uh, in that chapter, so that's the end of him. In chapter 32, remember, they're not in the promised land yet. They're to the east of it, and two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, they, decide, they look around and they say, you know what, this is kind of nice land here. Can we just settle here with our two tribes? And they talk it out with, with Moses, and the decision's made that, yeah, you can take this land here. It's not technically the promised land, but the condition is you still have to go and help us To uh, with the war effort, you have to help us to drive out the Canaanites and uh, who were very wicked people, and and then you can have your inheritance over here. So that's in chapter thirty-two. There's some recaps and different things of their journey. Thirty-four, it gives the boundaries of Israel, and so listing out you know the different sides and what God is giving to them, and so we see the details of that which, by the way, you know, Israel has never actually fully possessed all of this yet. So the fulfillment of that promise is is still yet to come. Talks about 35 cities for the Levites, cities of refuge. We'll talk about that more in an upcoming message as well. And then there's some various things, and you get to the end of the book of Numbers. And then we get to the book of Deuteronomy. So now we're in Deuteronomy. The name Deuteronomy, this is the the fifth book of Moses, And Deuteronomy literally means Second law Deutero means second Namas means law So so the word Deuteronomy literally means Second law And I really, I encourage you The parts that we're not doing messages over To still go through and and read this A lot of great stuff here Uh, You'll notice there's a lot in Deuteronomy That you might say, well it seems like we've done this before Uh, Yeah It's a second giving of the law and the reason for that is this is kind of Moses's kind of last message. God's speaking to him through Israel before they're supposed to go in and conquer the land, and Moses is pleading with them to remember what God has told them, to obey these things, to be careful to do these things. So he's reminding them of of all these important truths. There's new material as well, but some of it is is a recap of these things that they already have heard. Uh, in the first three chapters, it's a nice kind of history lesson overview of everything, which can kind of get you up to speed. There's a part in Deuteronomy 3 that I do want to read with you. Deuteronomy 3, starting with verse 23. And it's kind of a sad little section. Because Remember, Moses uh, had this episode where God told him to, uh, there was this rock, and the people needed water. They're complaining about this, and God told him to speak to the rock, and it would provide water. And a year ago, before that, God had told him to strike the rock and have the water come out, and the people were complaining so bad, and Moses got angry, and this time he was told to speak to it, and he, he struck it again, which was against what God had told him to do. And there were other reasons why this was a serious thing. And God was upset with Moses and told him that because of that disobedience, because of what he had did, uh, that Moses would not be allowed to enter the promised land. I mean, Moses, I believe, was still saved. You know, we'll we'll, we'll see him in heaven one day. But there was this consequence. He wasn't going to be able to go in. And so Moses is in this section, pleading with God to release him of that consequence. So Deuteronomy 3.23, Moses says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan." That good hill country in Lebanon, saying, God, you're, you're forgiving. I know you just forgive. Please, he's asking again to be forgiven. But here's but God's response But says, But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. It reminds me of times when the kids ask for something over and over, and it's, a, it's a final answer. And that's what God is telling Moses. Don't bring this up again. This is uh, forgiving up, but this is a consequence that is going to stick. Verse twenty-seven: Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward, and look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan. He's saying you can go on this mountain by the Jordan River. You can look and you can see it. You can see it, but the consequence remains. You, you don't get to enter. But charge Joshua, and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people. He'll be the new leader, Joshua. And he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remain in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. That's a reminder. There are some things that there are lasting consequences. We know God is a forgiving God, but... um, there there are some things that at least the consequences in this life don't always go away. And we need to we need to realize that as we seek to to live our lives. So then Moses in chapter four he gives more stressing to to obey. He's telling the people, make sure you obey God, do what he says. Don't follow idols. The Lord God alone is is God. In Deuteronomy five, it gives the Ten Commandments again. And it's this again, <coughs> because it's no, it's not another Ten Commandments. It's not like, oh, you had Commandments 1 through 10 before, here's 11 through 20. Uh, no, it's the same Ten Commandments, but he's giving them to, again, uh, the first time was in Exodus 20. And so we're not skipping over the Ten Commandments. We believe that's important. We had a message on that in Exodus 20. And actually, uh, for PM messages, Pastor Nick and I did a 14-week series on the Ten Commandments. And I encourage you, it's, uh, we, we want it to be a resource. It's on the website. If you go to Messages and Audio Messages, uh, you can find that. So now we are going to have this message from uh, Deuteronomy 6. And I forgot my little clicker. This message from Deuteronomy 6. And you know, even before we get into that, you know, giving the law again and all this, there's just a little side application here to remember is that we think, well, why is all this space being used for a lot of Deuteronomy that's the second time around? Isn't it already written? It's a reminder to us that important things need to be stressed. And or- important things need to be stressed and repeated. And it's a reminder to us that important things need to be taught to each generation. New generations come up, and if we just think that they're just going to automatically know the same truths, have the same values have the same uh, grounding in God and his word, we're mistaken. These things need to be taught fresh to each generation that is coming up. And that's why it's the role of all of us, who are passing down these truths. So Deuteronomy 6, huge, important chapter. We're just going to have the first five verses we're going to deal with today. And I'm going to summarize this message in, in one sense with this phrase. There is one to love. And I'm going to explain what I, what I mean by that. So let's read Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 5. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So stop there for a moment, because this next section is what is called the Shema. And the Shema here, these these next verses, this is kind of like the John three sixteen for for Jews, okay? I mean, for Christians, chances are if you know one uh, verse of scripture, it, odds are it's John three sixteen, because it's just it's such a, a crystal clear passage about salvation. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you were a Jew in the Old Testament or even today, you would know these next words, the Shema. It's called the Shema because that's a word for hear and that's how this starts. Hear, O Israel. And this would be repeated every week in the synagogue. If you were a pious Jew, you would say this yourself twice a day. So, this is just at the core of everything for the Old uh, Testament revelation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those are the verses that we're going to look at most heavily today. Now, the beginning of chapter 6, there's a lot there about commands. I mean, if you looked at just the words here to get the impression, this is the commandment, the statues, the rules that God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them. I mean, there's a strong point there. Moses is, is pleading with them. God speaking through him, saying, these commands are given. God's laws are given. And these are not just decorative things to put on your wall. Okay, these are not just uh, nice advice. These are things you need to do these things. God's laws are, are meant to be obeyed. It talks about the fear of the Lord and says that there, there's a healthy fear, not being afraid of Him in, uh, in one sense, but having a healthy respect that you want to do what is right. And that part of this healthy fear, you, you fear the Lord by keeping His commandments and to do them all the days of your life. It's not just once in a week or once in a while. We're supposed to constantly be doing these things. And it gives consequences for this, that all may go well with them. And so he promised you uh, they'll go well in a, in a land flowing with, with milk and cheese. Wait, okay, that's Wisconsin. Okay, um, where I grew up. Milk and honey, that's Israel. Okay, got that right. And so you notice there's, the things will go well with you generally, there is a sense that if you live according to what God has told us to do, if you live according to your design, things, on the average tend to go better than if we live against what our our design and purpose. And that's, so that's just an abiding principle. Uh, but for these Israels in this, this specific covenant relationship, there was even more because God had promised them He would give them specific blessings for obedience. And there would be consequences and curses for disobedience. Moses is reminding them of this. Now here's the thing. And I bet there, there are people here that feel this way. And I think maybe some, all of us have felt this way at times. I have, I think others have. If You, you may not want to admit it. But all this talk about commandments and laws and rules just makes everything seem real dry. You know, there's a lot of fun, exciting things in the world. And so what is this about, you know, God and Jesus and Christianity and the Bible? It can come across sometimes it's a bunch of just kind of dry rules, dry duty. And sometimes that's what Satan wants us to feel that it's like. Sometimes people stay away and keep an arm's distance from God and from the things that they need because it just feels like it's a bunch of just dry duty, a bunch of boring oppressive things that we're called to do. And that's why I really want us to think about the next verses, too. When God says, here's the core of what you're being called to do. And if we think about this and we start to realize what it means, it changes everything. It changes, it's a game changer. This will change your mindset about what it means to have a relationship with God, about your purpose, about everything, the commandments that God is giving you, what he wants from you. We will not be sinking into to hopelessness. So when we look at the, the Shema here, we're going to look at verse 4 and verse 5. And verse 4, I'm going to say this is the greatest doctrine, the greatest truth that we have that we we need to believe is that the Lord is God and he is one. That's Deuteronomy 6, floor, 4, uh, Saying the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so I said, a lot of this can be, in a way, summarized with the sentence: "There is one to love." This part here would really stress: there is, there's one to love. There, there's one God. There is one that is to be the focus of everything, just and just one. So when we unpack this, and we, if this is the most foundational truth. To believe, and I, I think it is, then there's at least some parts of this as we pull it apart. This means that the, the Lord of the Bible is God. And if we were reading this in Hebrew, it would be even more apparent because sometimes we use the word Lord of, of anything. You could have all kinds of lords or masters or whatever. But notice in your Bible, hopefully, uh, the word for Lord here is in all capital letters. And that lets us know that this is, in Hebrew, this is the, the covenant name for the God of Israel. This is Yahweh. It's four letters in Hebrew, which is similar to our YHWH. Okay, and it was the, the sacred, most holy name for God. There's some names for God that some of the other false gods use, um, you know, Baal and, you know, Baal gods, but no one else is called Yahweh. And so this is really specific. The things that it's talking about, this isn't for just whatever you claim to be God. This is for the God who exists, the God who is the God of Abraham, the God that is the God of the book of Exodus, the God who has revealed himself in the Bible, in Scripture, that put himself in covenant with Israel. It's that one is the one that we are talking about. So it's not just any one God is God. It's this specific God. And then it emphasizes that this God is one I mean, the the force of this is that God is one. He is is one God. And we can unpack this, because this has a lot of different parts of it, a lot of shades of meaning to it as well. For one, it means that he is is the solo God. He is one in number. There are not two gods. There are not 20 gods. There are not two million gods. How many gods are there? There is one God. And that's it. That's all there's ever been. That's all there's ever going to be. It's just him. So we are monotheists. That means believing in one God. This also means that God is, is unique. God is one of a kind. There's no one else that is like him. In Isaiah 46, 9, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. He is in a different category from everyone else. He is not an inflated version of a perfect human being. Okay, he has. That's why we can't really wrap our minds completely around who God is, because we don't even have things to compare him with. We don't know anything else that is uncreated, that is beyond time and, and apart from time and unchanging, all these different things. God is unique. It's amazing. But also, those that talk about Hebrew, they say that this word also, it carries another meaning as well, too, that's really important. And that talks about the unity of God. That God is his unified. He is one in the same kind of all the way through. He's not composed of a, a bunch of different God segments put together. It's not there's like parts of God that are like this and parts that are like something like that. Now you can go and get yourself an ice cream cone, triple scoop, and you could be you know, looking on it and hmm, it's chocolate. And after a while, oh now it's butterscotch. Hmm, now it's strawberry. God's not like that. It's not like there's this God up here and then something different when you get a little bit further down and then something different. He's actually the same all the way through. You talk about God is a a simple God. Theologians use that term. And what they mean by that is not that God is easy to understand, it means that God is not composed of parts. He's not a a Lego God that's ever been assembled. And because he's never been assembled, it means no one had to put him together. It means he's never going to come apart uh, because he doesn't have pieces. He doesn't have pieces that come apart. And there's not like one little kind of love piece and a wrath piece and a mercy piece and they're all in conflict with each other. Nope. He's the same all the way through. Those words might be words that describe the totality of what he's like, but he's the same all the way through. Those parts, they don't contradict each other. Now, as you go through Scripture, God reveals himself more and more that he is Trinity. He is a Trinity. There's one God that, is, that exists in three persons. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. But there's just one God. So, saying God is one, this does not contradict there being a Trinity. This is the foundation for it. This is what holds it all together. So God is one. Therefore, there are not many gods, there's no one like God, and God is not divided within himself. Now, if that's the greatest greatest truth, the greatest doctrine, the foundation of of kind of everything else, the next verse, verse 5, this is the greatest duty, the greatest commandment, the greatest, the most important, most foundational thing, what we were told to do. And that is to love the Lord with everything that is within you. And I summarize it like that because verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's your duty at the core. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. What does God want you to do? That's what he wants you to do. So if the other... Uh, verse was stressing that there's one to love. This one stresses that there's one to to love, that you are called to to love God, to delight in Him, to find your happiness in God, to, to find your joy in God. Last week we talked about when the Israelites got led into worshiping Baal, and when Israel was judged for that, it came out that God said that, that he is a jealous God. And he talks about that in the Ten Commandments, too. And we talked about what does that mean? Because usually we think of jealousy as a bad thing, and you're envious of something else. But we said for God, you know, this is, there's a good type of jealousy. And it's the kind of jealousy that, let's say, a husband should have for, for his wife to, to guard and protect her, and she shouldn't be running around with other guys. So there's a healthy jealousy there. Now, not in a, a, an unhealthy, you know, creepy, domineering way, but there's a healthy way that you, you're exclusive for each other. And that when a man and woman get married to each other, not only you're saying yes to each other, but you're saying no to everyone else. And so God wanted uh, Israel to say no to all these false pretend gods. But there's no use, if you're getting married, in saying no to every other woman in the world if you're not going to actually love the one that God has given you, the one that you're supposed to have. Yes, it's important to say no to all the others, but the main thing is to, to love the one that God has given you. So this is stressing that we are to, to love the Lord, love the one that we, that who made us, made us for himself, and made us to, to love him. I think it's okay for me to say this is the greatest duty because Jesus said that. Jesus called this the first and greatest commandment. Uh, one of the places in Matthew 22, 34 and 40 says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? They're thinking, we'll see what Jesus says and we'll find some problem with this. And he, Jesus, said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So he's pointing to the Shema. And then he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So everything boils down to love God with everything that's in you, and love your neighbor as yourself that's the second one but the first one is to love God to finish up here there's so much we could say about what it means to love God but i want to give you seven statements seven kind of thesis statements subpoints i wish we had time to do like a seven week series on all these because i think if you th- i encourage you to write these down to think about these things i think they're all biblical and As these things sink in, this is life-changing. This will change what you think about a God and Christianity and a relationship with him. So the first I want to give you is that love God first for God's sake, not for the blessings that he gives us. The way that we ought to love God first is for the sake of, of who he is not for the different blessings and different things that he can give us. Because there can be a type of love for God, and people that think they love God, but it's a defective type of love, actually a sinful type of love that's really kind of a mercenary love. You don't really love God for who he is. You like the stuff. You like what you think he can deliver to you. And there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians, a lot of you know, health and wealth churches, you know, it's about, I'll love God, I'll praise him so he gives me the solid gold Bentley that I want um, or to heal me of all my diseases or give me the job promotion. And it's not just health and wealth churches. So let we treat God like that. We end up being like the prodigal son that Jesus talked about. Remember the prodigal son? He wanted the inheritance, but he wanted to leave his father and just take it and go. He wanted the father's stuff, but he didn't want the father. And so we want to make sure that first and foremost, what we're loving God for is just who he is, even before we think about the blessings. It is okay. And we should thank him for the blessings. We always should. And the biggest blessing is forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. But at the core, we want to love him just for who he is even before all of that. That is the core of of this true, genuine love that we're talking about. Second, want to love God with an undivided love. If we're supposed to love him fully with everything that's within us, heart and soul and might and mind and all this, it's everything on this one God, loving him fully. God is undivided. He is one God, and we are to love him with an undivided love as well. That means if it's like you have a hundred chips of love it's not like, well, okay, I'll have 30 chips for loving God and I'm going to put another 25 over my hobby and, okay, I guess my wife gets these and we'll spread the rest out for my kids and, and do that. What I'm saying to you and what I believe Scripture is teaching is that it all needs to be on God. Everything is on God. We're, our love should not be divided. Now, there's something that you're thinking and I'll get to that, okay? But I want you to believe that. I believe it's supposed to be undivided, that it's all on God. It's exclusive. And there are things that if we start dividing up our love on other things, there's some things that are just mutually exclusive with that. In 1 John 2, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the things of of Satan and, and sinful things. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. If we're loving sin, and we're loving these sinful things, and it's, it's most people do, then that is incompatible with loving God, and we're supposed to love him fully. Now, a question, and some of you had this, I, I, I'm sure, and it, it's reasonable for you to have this. Okay, pastor, you're saying that I have to, we have to be all in just loving God, like all our, all our chips on him. Am I not supposed to love my wife? You're thinking, am I not supposed to love my husband or my, my fiance or my kids? And four kids, I'm not supposed to, to love them or my parents? What about my neighbors? Here's the thing true love for others flows from true love for God. And that's how it works. That's so why you love God fully, and out of that is gonna flow good, true love for other things. Never for sin. That's incompatible. But God, your husband, okay, God wants you, he commands you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Okay, wives, well, you're supposed to love your husbands. You want to love your kids. That's that's good and right, and you should love them uh, with a deep, amazing love. And you should love your family and your, your parents. And you should love your neighbor. Remember what's the second greatest commandment according to Jesus? To love your neighbor as yourself. So all those things are good, but it if you start by loving God, everything else will flow from that. You will love what God loves. And you will love what God tells you to love. And so it's a way that it's, it's not divided. It's, it's loving them through and because of your love for God. And that's, that's true love. These things can't be separated. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Love others because he loved us first. If you notice, when you you fall in love with someone, there are things that maybe you did not like at all, maybe before you got married? uh, And afterwards, you you get pulled into these things, not because you wanted to do this hobby or watch the TV show or whatever it is, but you're doing it because you love your spouse. Maybe after time, you, you learn to love it as well. You learn to love other people as well because of that. When we learn to love God, we learn to love what he loves. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not the worldly things in that sense, sinful things, but the people of the world. And that's why we love our neighbor out of true love for God. God is intrinsically lovable. Here's what I mean by that. People say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You know, you might think that painting is beautiful and somebody else thinks it's ugly. You might like the song or maybe they don't it's all opinion. All beauty is just opinion. That's what people say. What I'm saying to you is that God is intrinsically lovable. He is intrinsically beautiful, intrinsically glorious. There's no uh, survey that we need to take. It doesn't matter. This is not an area of opinion. That's just, it's how it is. And there are some things like that. I mean, there's some works of art. There's some landscapes and different things that there's something wrong with you if you don't find a glory and a beauty in it, okay? We don't have to do a survey, an opinion poll, to see if you think that honey is sweet, okay? It just is. If you put it to your tongue, it, it is sweet. And if it's not, there's something wrong, okay? So God is like this. He is intrinsically glorious. It doesn't come from us. It, it comes from him. He's intrinsically lovable. I am not intrinsically lovable okay? It's not that God just had to love me because I am so wonderful. Okay, I'm made in his image There's something for that, but I'm a sinful rebel against God. There's a lot not to love. God loves me, but he loves me in spite of myself. And guess what? You're not as lovable as you probably think you are, okay? But God loves you because of himself in spite of that, in spite of your sin, in spite of your rebelliousness. He still loves you. But we don't have to love God in spite of his anything. He, just, he is intrinsically beautiful and wonderful and lovable. We just have to look. We just have to have open eyes that can see him. This past summer, we went on a trip out west, and we went out to the, uh, to the Grand Canyon. And uh, I, it was my first time going out to the Grand Canyon. And I had been told, you know, the pictures don't do it justice, And uh, just how amazing it is. So I went in, you know, knowing that. And I knew facts about it, how deep it was and how wide it was. And I've seen videos and National Geographic specials and all these different things. Uh, So I went in there kind of knowing, okay, it's supposed to even be better and more amazing than than pictures can capture. I, I get it. And one thing I remember hearing is I was listening to a podcast and somebody made the comment that, one of the things he thought was just true is that no one goes to the Grand Canyon and walks away disappointed. That you go there and no matter how much you were expecting, you're just, you're blown away even more. And you see it and it's like, wow. That is just beyond belief. And that's the experience I had. Even the high expectations I have, you see the thing and it, it's beyond words. I'm telling you, that's what God is like beyond what God is like. If you go to the Grand Canyon and, and you say, Nuh. okay. <laughs> well maybe that means you're not looking. Okay, and a lot of people they're about God because they're not looking. They're doing something else this morning. They're going through life being distracted by all these other things. It's like we're going to these national parks and at one time I'm looking around and I notice the kids in the back they're on their their, their iPods. Like, kids, what do you do? No, I didn't bring you here so you can play Minecraft, okay? Get off those, put them away. And look out the window. I want you to be blown away and amazed by, by what you see. This will change you. This will grab your soul. It's so beautiful. Out of love for you, put down your device and, and look. That's what God wants you to do. If you're like, "hmm, about God, you got to look, Okay? But there's something else that could be a problem too. Maybe like, well, I'm trying to look and uh, not that impressed. Well, here's the thing: you could have, let's say, honey not be sweet to you um, because you're not touching it to your tongue. But maybe you're if you're touching it to your tongue and it's still not sweet to you, you got some kind of problem. Okay, go see a doctor or something. There, there's some kind of issue. And let's say this too: if you take a corpse and you put honey all over it, just pour it on. It's not going to have it feeling sweet because it's dead. When we're dead in our sins, we don't experience God the way that we ought to. We don't realize how good and beautiful and awesome he is. But the problem is not with God. He is intrinsically beautiful. The problem is with us. That's the next point, is that failure to love God is not because of a defect in God but it's because of a defect in us. It's sin. Sin has messed us up, so we're not impressed by the life-giving, awesome, beyond the Grand Canyon, God that is actually there. We need to look at, but even that we need, you could look at the Grand Canyon all you want. If you are blind, you're not going to be impressed. You need a miracle to give you eyesight so you can see it. And you need a miracle. You need the new birth you need God to change your heart and give you to open your eyes so you can see what is there so you can have your heart changed and be, in, be inspired and to be captivated and to love him that's what we're called to do and it's wrong, it is sinful when we don't we don't love God as we ought to and that's a problem none of us love God as we ought to and that's sin, we're breaking the first and most important commandment but praise God, there is someone who did. Jesus Christ, the God-man. And he, he is God. And he knows what God is all about. He knows what God is like. And he came down and he became a human being. And also as a human being, he lived a perfect life, perfectly loving God the way that he ought to. And out of that flowed his obedience and everything else, but he loved the Father. He loved the Holy Spirit. He loved the Godhead. And guess what? He did that perfectly for you in your place if you will trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's part of how salvation works, is that Jesus Christ not only did to go to the cross to take your sins upon himself, but he fulfilled all of the commandments. And this is the first and greatest. He fulfilled this one. That means when you trust personally Jesus Christ the Lord as your Savior, turning from your your sin and all this and turning to him that his perfect law-keeping of this is credited to you so that God he knows that you didn't love him perfectly but you get credit for that because of Jesus Christ as your substitute that's how we're saved that's the only way that we're saved and then even as Christians we realize we don't love God as the way we should and before we were Christians, we didn't at all. True love for God is a gift of God, as He turns our hearts and opens blind eyes. This is this is being born again. This is the new birth. Loving God is a characteristic of someone that is that is saved. Romans eight twenty eight talks about uh, God working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And well, I don't love God the way I should. Yeah. But if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus loved God the way that you should for you, one, and he is changing your heart, giving you a new heart that loves him. If there's no love for God in your heart, maybe you said some kind of prayer or some kind of words, but it wasn't the real thing. And I pray that God would open your heart, that he would open your, your eyes, that you would see him and that you'd be drawn to him. And you would come to him and love him as your Lord and your Savior. Do you see how this changes everything? If we understand what it means to love God? If you were thinking, uh, oh, dry duty, it's all about what I can't do, and I can't do the fun things out there, and I have to do these boring things. No, don't let the devil deceive you. It is not about dry obedience. The duty The duty that God is telling you to do is to delight. The duty that God is telling you to do is to delight in him, the one that is the ultimate source of satisfaction and joy and beauty and glory and love for you. He's the one that made you for him, that made you for this, to love you and to love him and to experience joy through that. God created you for this. Sin keeps that from happening, the sin that we're all born with. Jesus went to the cross to solve that problem for anyone that will turn to him and trust him as Lord and Savior, no matter how bad your sin was, so that you can delight and love God forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you We give you praise from our hearts. Help us turn our hearts to you in love, to delight in you as the one that is so intrinsically lovable and wonderful and glorious. Open our blind eyes. Give us new hearts to help us to to see that and to savor who you are. And Lord, may may obedience and everything else flow from that, that we, we love you and we want to please you, Lord God. But we thank you that a relationship with you is not dry duty. Our duty is to delight in you and to love you, Lord God. And that is joy. And it is all through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.